So as we take this section, we really are stepping on from where we left off last week. And I don't want to miss what, uh, how it unfolds. There are three main aspects that we're looking at this morning, which you probably saw before the screen went up. We're going to be looking at the, the emphasis or focus on the word, and then we will be looking at the witnesses, and then we'll be looking at the water. Those three simple things unfold in this passage. With regard to the word, he's, we're continuing to recognize that unique priority over God's word that is delivered to us through the apostles over anything else that men comes up with. We remember that last week we, we had begun to look at certain things and uh, Peter had come and when he met Cornelius, he had said, you know that it's not lawful for me, a Jew, to, to come with you, to eat with you, to be with you who is a Gentile. That that had been an established tradition of separation by the Jews. Now that was not wholly rooted in the scriptures. The scriptures had called them to remain separate from those Jews who were, those, those Gentiles who were in idolatry. But they were to consider the foreigner who had joined them and become sojourners with them. There was to be one law for the foreigners and the citizens among you. No distinction that they could even participate in the Passover and the various feasts. Though who, those who had attached themselves to the children of Israel. And gone through the necessary rites to be a proselyte. This was a man who was a Gentile. And so what begins to happen is traditions had risen up. And we see that was the tradition among the Jews. An absolute distinction and even disparaging of those who, who were not among them. But we see that those traditions influencing had even happened and Christ had been confronted with those. Why do your disciples eat without washing their hands, not following the tradition of the elders? And I just want to again, again emphasize this because we cannot overemphasize the importance of the word. When Jesus spoke to those individuals who said that, he answered in a way that... Clearly is stronger than we should. Remember he is one who spoke. As one having authority. His response to them was you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you. When he said. This people honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines. The commandments of men. And that, that's the concern. And so we've got to work through. We are committed to the scriptures and what they say. But is there a place for traditions among God's people? And I will say this. We cannot wholly cast it out. But what are to be the grounds of our tradition? We did not have time to touch on this last week. So I will touch on it briefly this week. And that is in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 6. When Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica. He says these words. Now we command you brothers. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. To keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. And not according to the tradition that you received from us. Now you see the distinction. There is, going, there is a new source of tradition that's coming forward. The apostles themselves were going to have the authority. We spoke of this briefly last week. Where they could come in and what you bound will be bound and what bound and what you loose will be loosed. 
using that rabbinical language as the rabbis would tell people, you can't eat without washing your hands and you can't do this and you can't do that. Oh, but you can do this and you can. That It's bound when it's prohibited. It's loosed if it's allowed. Jesus said, passed that authority indeed on to his apostles. And so they are going to be the ones who step forward and establish new traditions that indeed overarch and override whatever was established previous. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he writes like this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by spoken word or by our letter. One more, 1 Corinthians 11, 12, 2 says this. Now I command you, because you remember me in everything, to maintain the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Okay? So there is a place for traditions. But they ought not necessarily be the traditions and tendencies of men that hold us captive. But we give ourselves to the word. One of the biggest... Uh, uh, emphasis that we don't want to lose and and when you do drive past and you see the the little signage that's out there it does say unashamedly reformed and among that notion one of the biggest steps forward in the days of the reformation was a return to the authority of scripture their, their, one of their foundational cries was sola scriptura the scripture alone they would basically study the scripture and they say it doesn't matter what the, what the creed of the church says. It doesn't matter what this synod says. It doesn't matter what the, the pope or the cardinals or these various individuals say. It is what the scriptures say that holds authority. It is the scriptures alone that have that binding power. That is to be established and that in the idea of tradition is to be passed on from one generation to the next to the next. And the establishment of the traditions that would be carried out in the New Testament church are those things that are set in place by the apostles. The scripture reminds us that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the term there is a hindiotis. It's like a hyphen. The apostolic prophets. But I thought there was only one foundation, which is Christ. Yes, indeed. Because he is the one that it's built upon. He's the heart and center of their message. Indeed, he's the originator of all that they themselves will communicate and convey. Okay? And so we, we see this very strongly. When they come, when he, Peter comes now to, to meet Cornelius... We again reflect briefly on those words in 1033. I sent for you at once. You've been kind enough to come here. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God. To what? To hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. There was this confidence and it was even attested and designed that angel would communicate to him not the commands of the Lord but would have him send that Peter might come and give those authoritative commands 
We also looked last week that Paul would write to the church in 1 Corinthians 14 and remind them, whoever you have among you or whoever you have that's there who is spiritual or a prophet has to acknowledge that what I write to you as an apostle is a command of the Lord. If he does not recognize this, he is not to be recognized. And so we have that wonderful, beautiful, powerful evidence unfolding there. Uh, again, I wanted, wanted to note this, their heart and desire and command uh, all unfolding in this passage. But look what further it, it says here regarding Cornelius as it spoke of him as one having fear for the Lord and one loving Christ. It says this in, in Jeremiah 32, behold, I will gather Jeremiah 32 verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all of the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. And I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Now, this is the promise of God that in the in the prophecy for the assembling of the saints. Remember. This is, this is also powerful for Peter himself to get because he's slowly beginning to grasp that the Gentiles have full inclusion. Remember, towards the end of this passage, as I was reading the opening segment, session, uh, uh, section of Scripture, he had said this, that those who were gathered with him were amazed that the Holy Spirit had been given even to the Gentiles. They expected that they might have some place, some privileges, but that they would be equal. That God would indeed be breaking down the dividing wall and putting in its place one new man is powerful. And again, that is what God is doing. The outpouring of God's grace. I always want to remind you of this. What did Jesus say? He said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell or the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Right? And he builds his church. And he's continuing to build it. It still says, I'm still in Jeremiah 32, verse 39. It says this. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. It's important to know that because remember, it's said of Cornelius that he feared God. He and his household feared God. And so we might ask ourselves, where did that come from? Why did he, among the co uh, Italian cohort, fear God and not the others? And we know this, because he was the blessed recipient of the grace of God in the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. So that's why it says this, uh, I, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and for the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing them good. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them. I mean, that's, we talk about the fact that the idea of once saved, always saved and things along those lines. The, the great thing of God's grace is it's not merely once saved, I always have my entrance into heaven. But he works within us 
even now. He puts the fear of Him, the love of Him, the longing for Him in our hearts, that it says this, that they may not turn from me. In the grace of God, He pours His Spirit into our heart and we turn from the world, we turn from idols, we turn from ideologies, we turn from opinions, we turn from sin, and we turn to the true and living God, right? And you know what the grace of God guarantees? When we by grace have been turned, we will not turn from Him. Now in our experience, the journey following Him, there may be brief moments of slowdown. There may be a little stumble that takes place. There may be even occasion where the stumble is such that it seems you take a few steps back. And a little backsliding takes place. But you know what will not happen for those in whom the Spirit of God dwells? They will not turn. And the Spirit will continue to work that work of conviction... That work of grace, that work of divine enablement, that they will again follow him, not turning aside. Such a wonderful thing as, as God unfolds this. And, and it's important to know, as Peter himself was struggling with this issue and God was going to make this clear to him in the word, this tremendous change. It says this in Ephesians, Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel of which I was made a minister according to the grace of God, which he has given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of the saints, was given, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And again, as we're going to get into this text a little bit stronger, I don't want you to miss this. This is what Paul is saying, and this is exactly also what Peter does preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. The emphasis is on the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the power of Christ, the promises in Christ. But we have a tendency to marginalize Christ. We, by me, we, I mean, the modern tendency in our age is to minimize the declaration of the unsearchable riches of Christ and maximize the personal benefits. Such that people tend to respond. Not with, a, not with a heart and longing. To come to Christ. To follow Christ. To lay hold of Christ. To be a disciple of Christ. They come for heaven. They come for peace. They come for blessing. They come for hope. All of which we receive in Christ. But they've not come for Christ. And I ask you if they've not come to Christ. For who he is. Not only for what he gives. Do they know him? Do they truly know him? Because we glory in what he gives. But it's who he is. I, I Even sometimes I think this. Would you turn from him. If. He gave less. 
Would you turn from him? If, if it meant greater hardship in this life. Now, we know that there are tribulations in this life, but somehow in the grace of God, he can grant us a peace that passes all understanding. Isn't it right? You know, and that there is worry and anxiety in this life, but he says, look, cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. So there are those exceedingly practical benefits to us. But if he said, you get nothing now, you get no foretaste of glory divine, you just got to wait for it. If instead of, instead of people promising prosperity, we promised poverty. Now, we don't promise either. The scriptures don't promise earthly prosperity or threaten earthly poverty on every believer. There, even to Timothy, he says, to the rich among you, urge them to be rich in good works. And so there's going to be people with all different experiences, all different issues, some who have a lot more trials, some who have a lot more difficulties. But if it had been extreme poverty, constant persecution, trouble from within and without, enemies at every turn, and yet you will finally be delivered. Who would still say it's not enough? Right? <sighs> I, I think we, because that was Paul's divine lot. His particular journey was going to be an abiding thorn in the flesh, constant beatings and imprisonments and shipwrecks. He's even to be accounted last of all and worthless. And yet, did he consider Christ worth it? He still considered him the unsearchable treasure. And that's why it says, to bring to light, to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery of God hidden for ages and generations who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Colossians 1, he says it this way. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. What was hidden for ages and generations was the riches of this mystery, and it would be revealed also to the Gentiles. The scriptures had been abundantly clear about that, but people were slow to get it. And slowed to grasp it. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 56. I think you would understand this. This is a word that they themselves as Jews had. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say. The Lord will surely separate me from his people. <laughs> and let not the eunuch say. Behold I am a dry tree. In Isaiah 56 verse 5 it says, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So even though it was hidden, it was again one of those things that was hidden in plain sight. The hidden in plain sight, much like when Jesus was telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. 
They're going to mock me. They're going to beat on me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to hand me over. I'm going to be crucified, die, buried, and raised again on the third day. And then the scriptures say, they did not understand what he was saying. What? I mean, why did they not get it? Well, part of the issue is, to really rightly understand spiritual things, you need the Spirit of God. And later, at the end, after Jesus is resurrected, remember, he would breathe on them and say, receive the Holy Spirit. And as those apostles received the Spirit, he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, something that they did not have before. But then I want us to note this, as, as that is the case, and the word establishes all, let's look at the initial gospel presentation that he brings in part one. Acts chapter 10, verse 36. As for the word that was sent to Israel. And I love, that, that, I love the way that that's phrased. The word that was sent to Israel. We often state it as that way. The uh, faith once for all delivered to the saints. It, its origin is God. Christ is going to then deliver and speak it on behalf of the Father. He will say, what I speak, I do not speak on my authority. All that the Father gives me, I speak. So he says this. Preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That little statement in there, he is Lord of all, is intended to, to stir our minds, not just Jews. He's the Lord of Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, people from all countries, all stations, all places in life, all backgrounds and circumstances. I love that passage of scripture that, that, that lists all of those sins so common among men of which those who practice them will not inherit the kingdom of God. Right? It speaks of greedy, idolaters, covetous, immoral, uh, homosexual. All of those who are practicing these sins will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says these beautiful words, but such were some of you, but you were washed. It's like, ah, oh, here is that difference. He is Lord of all. So it doesn't even matter what, what sins you have previously committed. It doesn't matter, even Paul might testify, if you were previously a blasphemer. The grace of God is great, isn't it? But the grace of God, as great as it is, it, it's, it, it's so great because it says such were some of you. The grace of God doesn't simply admit sinners into the kingdom. It changes sinners as it transfers them from the kingdom of darkness, where they practice the deeds of darkness, to the kingdom of light of his beloved son, where they now walk in the light. So wonderful the way the scriptures unpack those things with great consistency. But I want us to note this. It says this. Um, you yourselves know. What happened throughout Judea, beginning at Galilee, at the baptism of John was proclaimed, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Just, just a moment of emphasis here. As soon as he begins to unpack the message, we briefly touched on it earlier this morning. Where does he go straightway? 
to Jesus. Isn't that right? To the declaring and the setting forth of Christ, who he is and what he has done. It certainly establishes the fullness of his incarnation. But I want us to note this. Wait, was Peter not saved? Yeah, so probably if he was walking around today or if Peter participated in a proper evangelism class. No, I hope you note the facetiousness in my language. He wouldn't have done that because just talking about Jesus might not motivate people sufficiently. So he would start off like this. I was a worldly fisherman. You know, hard working nights, sometime pulling in no fish. You know, I, not much hope for the future. I didn't know what would become of me. You know, just caught up in all of these things. But then, let me tell you what I experienced. Let me tell you about my journey. Let me tell you what happened to me. Now, I'm not saying that that has no place. What I'm saying is, Christ must have first place. Because the whole point is not that they should look at us and say, well, I want what he has. I want the experience he experienced. They need to be able to say this. I want to follow Christ. I believe in him. I hope in him. I rest in him. As opposed to, I kind of also want to, to turn over a new leaf. To make a new change. To fix a few things that were off. You know I would like. I would like to be less discouraged. And, and less depressed. And a, and a little bit more positive minded. And hopeful. And, and Peter used to be like this. And now he's like that. And I want what, I want what he's got. Mm -hmm. It's he is Christ's. I also want to be Christ's. <laughs> I want to be where he is in him. And he goes straight to that. And he speaks of Christ. Beginning in Judea. Galilee. The baptism of John. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth. With the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing. All who were oppressed. Now please note this. In verse 37 there. He says here. You yourselves know. So he had the privilege of abbreviating here. What they themselves knew. It may be that we engage people who don't know this. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe here in this country, in particular, if God takes you certain places overseas, you, you can't start with the presumption you yourselves know. Even indeed, we'll see when eventually we get to Acts 17 and he begins to address that idolatrous community instead of this individual who has been wonderfully exposed to the Old Testament scriptures, Cornelius and family, and one who also uh, uh, had been in that general region and vicinity to know of and hear of who Christ was and his roamings and what he had done because that testimony had been spread. In Athens, he didn't start in the same place, did he? In Athens, he started all the way back at creation. He started all the way back with one God, created all things and all countries and apportioned their boundaries. He did not start there with Cornelius, because you yourselves know that. Okay? 
So we've got to, there is some awareness of what's going on. But in all of this, both of those testimonies, and you, I encourage you even this afternoon to read this section, and again go to Acts 17 and read it, and how both of them directly run to Christ. And from Christ here, the establishment for him is all of those miracles and all the good deeds that he did were the perfect fulfillment of all the prophecies that were promised regarding the Messiah. So the, to, to those in the Jewish community and to Cornelius, who was well spoken of by the Jewish community and indeed was a God-fearer, he would understand all of those things that Jesus did, going about doing well, bearing our griefs and our sorrows. All of those promises proved him to be the Messiah. He fit what was prophesied in the Old Testament. And then further, it went beyond the known expectations to unfold even a little bit more. And for that, we, we really move into um, uh, part two of it, really in verse 39. It says, and we are witnesses of the things that he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, the Jews hadn't anticipated that. But the Old Testament had more than clearly anticipated that, hasn't it? And any of us who have ever read Isaiah 53 see that remarkable detailed declaration of our suffering Savior. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. And made him to appear. Not to all people, but to us whom he chose in verse 42. And commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to judge the living and the dead. The same thing that Paul says in Acts 17. What? He has appointed him to judge the world by a, by a man. That man Christ. And, and so when we see this, it is, it is the person of Christ in the deeds that he did. It is the work on the cross that was accomplished. It is his death and resurrection. And it is the sure of the coming judgment. How many of those things get left off? Some would even tend to say, uh, judgment, people find judgment to be a little bit off-putting. It's kind of negative. So let's keep things positive note. Let's talk about streets of gold and pearly gates and things that people, mansions in glory. Let's speak about the things they want rather than the things they don't want. I said, well, that's what these men are saying. But are these men the ones who were taught by Christ? Are these men the ones who had been marked out especially to be those unique foundational witnesses to pass on to us those traditions that are to be true and trusted? And I say that message, it's Christ. It's all that he was, all that he did, all that he accomplished, and all that he will do. So the heart of the gospel message and the head of the church and the hope of glory remain who? Christ. That can't and must not ever be set aside. So now look with me at the witnesses. So we've seen the word and the importance and the establishment of the word and the heart of the gospel centered on Christ. But I want us to look at the witnesses and 
partly touched on this. We'll touch on it a little bit more. First of all, the distinctive witness of the New Testament apostles. He says in Acts 10 verse 39, And we are witnesses of all that he did. All right? They are witnesses. Now, we, here's part of the challenge. Do we witness to others? I and mean, we use that language. We witness to others. But were we witnesses of all that he did? No. We witness of all that he did. But they were witnesses to all that he did. Again, establishing for us that reliable, absolute, profound message. And it's not surprising because I want you to note this. It says, still here, when, when God raised him from the dead, verse 40, it says this in verse 41. He caused, into verse 40, into verse 41. Raised him and made him to appear. What? Not to all people. But to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. All right, as believers, there is a sense in which God has chosen us to be his witnesses. Yes. But practically speaking, how many of us have eaten and drinking with him since he rose from the dead before he ascended? Right. These would be those foundational witnesses who would lay those immovable landmarks, those fixed memorials that we would just go back to time and time again. It's not a surprise in Acts 1-8, Jesus speaking to those apostles said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Now our desire is to carry on that task of being his witnesses, right? And the only way we faithfully carry on that task of being his witnesses is when the witness that we give is the exact same message that was given by them. We don't import our own wisdom to pare off the edges, to soften the sharp edges of the word that is a living and active sword. We don't uh, add our own ideas to seemingly make it accomplish more. We know from Isaiah chapter 55 what? God's word that he sends forth. It will not return void or in vain. But it will accomplish the purpose for which I send it forth. We believe. Romans 1.16 through 18. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So, should we do we need to make it better? You can't make it better because it's the and if we change it, tweak it, minimize it, does it still have the power of God unto salvation? So the whole message of Christ must be maintained, must be declared. Uh, 
regarding Jesus, he says this, and, and we see this, this is, was true of Jesus, and then he made it also in, the, in a similar sense true of those apostles who would speak on his behalf, and we must commit that it would be true of us as well. Jesus says this in John 3, 31 and following, and he makes a distinction between him and everyone else who ever speaks. He who comes from above is above all. Who is he who comes from above? It's Jesus himself. And so his word is to be taken above all. That's it. No one who came before him. If somebody understands the Old Testament to say something differently than Jesus reveals it to mean, who's to be trusted? Jesus in all things. And he says, he who is above, uh, from above, uh, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. And it says this, John 3, 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. We, whoever receives his testimony, sets his seal to this, that God is true. Ooh. So Jesus is basically saying, which is not a shock to us, what he says is what God says. No two ways around it. And he goes on to say, what else? For he whom God sent, the Son, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The disciples concerning themselves, those, those unique men. Remember, many disciples were there. Jesus came down from the hill and he marked out, after praying all night, 12 of them who would be what? Apostles. That specific designation is, in a sense, if we understand, we're to try to modernize that idea, they would be delegated spokesmen. Not all the, the disciples who were following, but those 12 were marked out that they would be able to speak with authority on his behalf. And that's why John can say things like he does here in John 21. It says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. There's going to be a lot of people in this world going to say a lot of things. And some of them are going to say it really well, really convincingly. Uh, someone was telling me the other day that they sat on a jury on one occasion and one person gets up and they present their case and they're sitting on the jury. Yeah, that sounds right. And then the opposing counsel gets up and presents his case and yeah, that sounds right. Uh oh, <laughs> both sides sound right. And you're trying to say, well, who, who's telling the truth? Is it the prosecution or the defense? Who's telling the truth? Is it the witness or the defendant? Who do we believe? That's a good question. And one we have to wrestle with in the issues of justice. 
one that by the grace of God we don't have to wrestle with in the same way when it comes to spiritual truth. Who do we believe? Jesus. Who do we believe? His apostles. And those apostles are what has given us the scriptures. Let's see a little bit more uh, regarding this in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19 and following. It says this, and we have, writing as that, from that uh, apostolic authority, we have a prophetic word that is more fully confirmed. Or the King James, we have a more sure word of prophecy. It's not questionable. And the word there for more sure, it's almost as I wish it hadn't simply said more sure or fully confirmed. It, it is, we have a reliable word, a certain word. This is, this is a guarantee. This isn't an opinion. This isn't a story. This isn't a feeling. This is what you can rest upon. And what is it? To which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. God was pleased to give us the Scriptures as the Scriptures, as holy men of God were carried along, borne along by the Holy Spirit. And we, we also know that the apostles have given us, by their authority, our New Testament text. And at no point was it just their own observations, just their own opinions, just their own spiritual experiences. I mean, that was the emphasis of liberalism so many years ago that still has such effect. Well, this is just the spiritual experiences of devout men that we can glean some good from. If that's all it is, how do we know truth? How do we rest on something with confidence? Because if that's all it is, you can get similar ideas from people with different experiences. And different doctrines and different beliefs. And then it leaves your head again spinning. Who do we believe? Well, those who are of the earth, they tell you earthly things. But he who is from above... From heaven tells you heavenly things. Believe him. Listen to him. In John 16, Jesus tells to his disciples these wonderful words. I still have many things to say to you. It was his intention, again, the purpose of Christ to communicate to them all that he would communicate to the church, to you and I. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Oh, here's a problem. Why couldn't they bear them now? Because they still yet had not received the fullness of the Spirit to give them understanding as they would. But verse 13 tells them, when the Spirit of truth comes. I have so many things to tell you, but you can't bear it now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. How can we be confident that what God through His apostles have given to us in His Word, that it's true? Well, because Jesus has indicated very clearly that he is going to give the Spirit to them, and the Spirit is going to guide them into what? All truth. 
Love the words when Jesus even prays in John 17, 17 to the Father concerning them. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. Oh, so wonderful. Um, he reminds him even of what the Spirit will do. It says, for the Spirit, for he, verse 13 of John 16, will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And so we see this wonderful interaction of the Godhead in Jesus' incarnation. He says, I don't speak of my own authority, but I speak uh, on the authority of the one who sent me. What he tells me, I speak. Now it speaks of Christ having ascended and the Spirit is going to be sent. And the Spirit is going to finish communicating to them the fullness of all that Christ desires to deliver to them. But the Spirit himself is not going to function in some independent, tritheistic manner. But as one Godhead, what he's going to deliver isn't exclusively from him, but from God. And Jesus even says, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. In John 14, verse 26, he says it this way. But the Helper... Whom the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said while I am with you. Because, well, but because part of it would be this. Well, what if they misremember? I mean, in the end, they're just men, right? Yes. And so what, what an unnerving position we'd be in if it was just that. But with regard to the spiritual truths and the teaching conveyed to them by Christ, the Holy Spirit has, God in Christ by the Holy Spirit has promised to superintend that full and faithful remembrance will be provided. We have a sure word. A reliable word, an unbeatable, unbreakable word. That's why John says those words in 1 John uh, 4, 6. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Now be careful. There's people who are running around who might substitute themselves with the us. <laughs> you know, uh, our church, our preacher, our guy. No, no, no. Listens to us, the apostles. Us, which for us is established in the scriptures. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. How do we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? Who submits in all things to what is given to us through the apostles of Christ. What is given to us in the unchanging word of God. Oh, many more things that we could share in this respect, but um, I'm just going to, uh, we'll get to the water next week. Today, I just want to, the witnesses we saw, first of all, were the distinct witnesses of the New Testament prophets, and that was my strongest uh, New Testament apostles. That's the strongest emphasis today. But the scriptures also give two more witnesses here that I don't want us to miss. And we'll brush on them and pick them up next week. The second witness is the witness of the Old Testament prophets. Chapter 10 verse 43 says, To him, to Christ, all the prophets bear witness. That everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. Amen. 
Isn't that such a glorious reality? Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness in his name. It's all rooted in him. Faith is rooted in him. The forgiveness is rooted in him. Everything bound up in Christ. And that's what the prophets bear witness to. That's what the apostles bear witness to. That's what we bear witness to. Is Christ. And, and so um, this, Jesus says of the spirit. He will take what is mine and deliver it to you. The spirit whom I will send. He will glorify me. And so one of the ways that for us to be able to recognize where the Spirit of God is truly profoundly active and where a people are really rooted in spirit and in truth, Christ will be spoken of more than anything and anyone else. As much as we rejoice in all of the teaching, all of the doctrine of the scripture, there's not a point at which any of them become divorced from Christ. They're all connected and find their grounds and their riches in him. And thirdly in this passage and lastly is the distinct witness of the spirit of God. And we'll take this up a little next week. Um, so you listen to the, uh, the apostles. You, you, you have some testimony of it in the Old Testament. And here again is the witness of the Holy Spirit. Those who had gathered, particularly the six men who were with Peter. They were not ready to recognize the full inclusion of the Gentiles. But then what the Spirit of God did is, is he came upon them. In such a powerful, living, and manifest way. That it was identical to the way that the Spirit came upon the apostles themselves at Pentecost. Remember, uh, uh, Peter reminds us uh, in 2 Peter 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Though we understand the foundational role of the apostles. And the absolute trustworthiness of all of their teaching. Their faith. Was no different. No better than ours. They still struggled at times to live out. Every aspect of their faith. Didn't they? And so the Holy Spirit when he comes in. And he works the very same gifts. As it will say in chapter 11. As I began to speak to them. The Holy Spirit fell on them. Just as on us. At the beginning. Everybody's dumbfounded. Wait. God has made no distinction. Between the first fruits. And those who follow. Those who had been members of the former covenant. And those who were seemingly estranged and far off. But God has made all one in Christ Jesus. Amen. So today we considered just two simple things. The word and the witnesses. The word is that which establishes the traditions that we hold to, cling to, follow, and practice. The center of the word and all that we do and all that we preach is Jesus Christ. His incarnation, 
His perfect work, the surety that he's coming to judge, not a pared down message, but the totality of it. The witnesses here involve the authoritative witness of the New Testament apostles. They involve the powerful prophetic witness of the Old Testament prophets. They involve also the attesting witness of the Spirit of God. Working the grace that changes, transforms, turns, empowers, enables brings us, delivers us to the kingdom of the beloved son. And next week we will take up and look at the water and the significance of the water given in baptism to this group. Let's pray.